When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay. Um, I'm Gary Molly. I own and operate Lone Star Mastiffs. I've had dogs since I can remember. Um, all different kinds of breeds. My family always had multiple guard dogs. Um, as far back as I can remember, it was Dobermans. <clears throat> We've always had hunting dogs, um, flushing dogs, retrievers, small game hunting dogs coon dogs we've always had um working dogs growing up um they were most of them were professionally trained um we i don't remember a time when there wasn't at least five dogs in our household my first dog that was my dog i got as soon as i moved out of the house it was a rottweiler um i just recently put her down uh, a couple of years ago. Um, she was 12 years old and she's one of the best dogs I've ever owned. Um, she went everywhere with me within a year um, of getting her. I rescued a one-year-old King Corso and he was a fantastic dog as well. Um, he wasn't necessarily to breed standard. He was on the larger side Um some would say a little bit sloppy, um, not fat, just excessive jaws, um, almost look more like a Neo in, uh, body type and structure versus, um, a traditional cane Corso. Um, but I, I love that dog. Um, and you know, he through, through people I met, you know, working with him, um, I got very involved into the Mastiff communities. Um, and I also had, um, I've got a master's in uh, marine geology. Um, and my background was, um, prior to that, I got a, my undergrad was in marine biology. Um, and some of the PhD candidates I was working with um, and spending a lot of time with in the labs were from Russia. And um, they were the ones who I had heard of Caucasian of Charkas and Central Asian of Charkas, but I did not, you know, I'd never seen one in person. Um, and I started learning about the breeds, um, through them. This was when I was probably 23, 24. Um, I worked in Alaska for a while and I remember the first time I saw a Caucasian of Charka, there were two in the back of a pickup truck driving by in a uh, small town um, that was landlocked and, you know, went into the general store and asked the guy, you know, what kind of dogs they were. Um, and he said, oh, everybody knows them. They're Caucasian of Charkas. They're extremely aggressive. Uh, don't go up to that pickup truck. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I was just in the 30 seconds I saw them, I was taken aback by just the size, the structure, how 
you know, how well suited they were to be in Alaska. And, uh, you know, I thought right then that that was a, a breed I wanted to own at some point in time. I had an opportunity to, instead of make it a hobby and a side business, I always wanted to own a farm or a ranch. Um, but I never saw myself being a, um, you know, full-time breeder or trainer. It was always just going to be a, a side business more as a hobby. Um, I had an opportunity, uh, about four years ago, um, that most people, you know, never get to, you know, jump all in, um, and, you know, kind of make my dream a reality. So I decided to go for it. And, um, I started researching dogs, started talking to breeders at first in the United States, um, came across a lot of, a lot of, I guess, breed snobbery. Mm-hmm. Um, and a certain mindset and, um, I really wasn't, didn't want to play the politics and I didn't want to be confined to, you know, just using this dog for a certain purpose or, you know, telling them that I have X amount of land and this is what the dog's going to do because I couldn't at that point in time, I was, um, I had just moved out of Galveston after the hurricane hit mm-hmm. and um, I was looking all over Texas for property. So I was spending, um, I don't know, probably, probably three or four days a week um, just driving around all over Texas, South Texas, West Texas, East Texas, everywhere, um, looking at different possible options. Um you know, something that was in my price range and budget to make what, uh, you know, kind of make what I had envisioned in my head a reality. And, um, so I couldn't tell people, Hey, I've got a hundred acres. I'm a, you know, I've got a cattle farm or I've got, you know, I've got a chicken farm. I need a livestock guardian. Um, and I already knew I had, you know, been enamored with the videos of them doing personal protection work, which a lot of people don't like and don't want to be associated with. And I thought that was, you know, really awesome. Mostly Eastern European kennels and specific lines um, where you saw them doing this kind of work. Um, I was already at that point planning on getting um, my police canine training certifications and kind of saw that as the first um, starting point to this journey. Um, so I went ahead and got my certifications for narcotics, explosives, apprehension, and tracking. Um, and was still driving around looking for property at the same time. But you know that you have to go live in the facility. It's a you know four month process mm-hmm. every day, and you know, basically a full-time job. So, um, I figured there's, you know, no way I'll ever get the opportunity to do that again, especially once this gets started. So I should do that first. Um, and then from there, um, that, that heavily influenced, uh, my decision and dogs that I was picking. Um, and I decided to, to go ahead and import, 
Um, my first two Caucasians came from Yozo in Croatia. Um, I was new to importing. Uh, those were the first two dogs I imported, and that was a stressful process, you know, process um, for anyone. But um, his wife speaks pretty good English, so I was able to talk, you know, with them throughout the whole process. And we, you know, he'd imported tons of dogs um, to America and all over the world. So very well respected, and I felt like I could trust him. Um, at the same time, I was also importing two burbles from South Africa, uh, from Carolyn Grief. And, um, you know, the, it was just kind of a process and I learned all kinds of stuff through those first four dogs. It was there pretty much what I expected, um, from, the little firsthand experience that I had with them and everything I'd researched and read, it was, I, th I think, uh, I think a lot of their traits are overplayed. I think, um, as with all breeds, I think how you raise them, I mean, genetics always plays a, an aspect in it, but I think you can train any dog to do anything and whether or not it's a time efficient, you know, endeavor, that may not be the case, but I think you can, if you're willing to put the time in, you'll, you can get whatever result you're looking for. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of people, you know, talk about how aggressive they are. I do that as well with, um, you know, potential clients that like myself at the time were new to the breed, hadn't owned one before, um, because, I mean, honestly, a lot of people, you know, think they want one as, you know, a status icon or whatever reason they, you know, are not well prepared and suited to take a dog like a Caucasian um, and care for it well and give it a good home. And those are the kind of dogs you end up seeing in shelters. Um but, I mean, if nobody gives anybody a shot at, you know, ever owning that dog, then, you know, don't ever, there isn't, you know, you don't ever have any first-time owners. So, um, I don't know, it's a fine line there. But another thing everybody always says is that they're untrainable, that they're so independent that they can't be trained. That is not true. They are hard to train. And it takes a lot of consistency and, you know, it's repetitive and takes more time than, you know, a Malinois or a Shepherd. But you can absolutely, you know, train them to be a service dog or, you know, anything really. Uh, I'm potentially looking at sending one um, with one of my hounds to go to blood tracking school um, just to see how that turns out. So, um, I think first and foremost, you need to trust your breeder. Mm -hmm. Um, when you're looking at buying a dog, you need to spend a lot of time talking on the phone. Um, you know, getting, getting to know your breeder because they're going to be helping you throughout the process. It's not like a, Hey, I'm just buying the dog and, um, you know, that's it. I'm not going to talk to this person again. 
it's uh, kind of a 10-year journey because there's going to be bumps along the way, especially with Caucasian Ocharka. I mean, it's all Molosser breeds, mm-hmm. but with the Ocharkas, this is or really any livestock, the hotter livestock guardian breeds, the Gampers, Tibetan Mastiffs, uh, Central Asian or Caucasian Ocharkas. Um, you know, they're going to challenge you at two years old. Uh, and leading up to that point, you're you're going to see a progressive rise in their aggression levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, their natural guardian instincts are going to come out. Um, it's not so much with the training, um, but more of your pack integration, your children integration, uh, resource card with food. Um, those are the kind of things that you really need to be mindful of with any of these breeds versus the Rottweiler, the King Corso. I mean, and you can have very hot Rottweilers, King Corsos, but, um, you know, it's, they're not the normal, whereas the normal of Charka or other, you know, these hot livestock guardian breeds there, that, that is, you know, more of the norm. So there's a lot of different schools of, of thought for this. And I'm currently utilizing multiple methods and it really depends on what your dog, what your intentions are for the dog. Uh-huh. Um, I've got dogs on the property that are hunting dogs. I have dogs on the property that are guard dogs that are more perimeter patrol. I've got dogs that are livestock guardians and, um, you know, I've got house, I've got house dogs. They're not house pets. They're house guardians. I've got hog dogs, all kinds of stuff. And it really just depends on what your goal is. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know what you're trying to do with them. So, I've got a I've got a group of puppies right now that I've integrated together as APAC. Um, they're all dogs that I've bred, and so I had the opportunity of starting them off. And even though they were all born within a six month period of time last winter, um, and I was able to integrate them as a pack how I saw fit from the get go, mm-hmm. and that was kind of an experiment for me just to see how that worked um, because that's what they do overseas. They you know let all the dogs grow up together they eat together and one thing i noticed with kind of the u.s mentality is that separation is the way to go Mm -hmm. and try to avoid dog fights altogether and i think the longer i'm doing this the more i mean in some cases that's just the reality of the situation especially so when i started i had dogs coming in that are four months that are six months that are two years four years haven't ever been together all of these aggressive breeds from all different life situations. So integrating them together was not a possibility with all of them. Um, so a lot of my foundation dogs live in, you know, big kennels, um, except when they're out running and they run in packs, but they do not eat together. Mm-hmm. Uh, always, you know, in the kennel, they have to go into their kennel if they want to eat. And, um, there are, you know, out of those dogs, there are dogs that were raised together, and I run them in packs of two to four, um, and I don't let, you know, the packs stay together, and they don't ever have any contact with the other dogs. That's set on a day-to-day basis based on their feeding and training schedule, and then that would blow with these large breed dogs is a big concern, so I 
have a set schedule for dogs that are getting trained mm-hmm. in the morning. Those dogs eat at night. Then I've got a schedule that's dogs that are running at night. Those dogs eat in the morning, sleep during the day. Um, and that's on a rotating schedule every day. Um, the puppies that I started out with that are now all together, um, that's two Armenian campers, two Central Asian of Charkas, and two Caucasians of Charkas. They all eat together. They have their squabbles occasionally. It's never serious. And they've developed a hierarchy. It's um, right now at like kind of a changing point because um, my male Asian of Charka, um, they were born on Christmas Day, and my Central Asian of Charka were born uh, at the end of October. So there's a couple months separation there, and the Central Asian of Charka was the dominant male, and the Caucasian of Charka male is now got 20 pounds on him mm-hmm. and is a couple months younger. Um, still a goofy, like goofy puppy stage. He's around 140 pounds. Um, and he's starting to test that and become the dominant dog, but they're working it out. Mm-hmm. And I don't expect you know, that I'm ever going to have like a dog fighting issue. There will, there will be, you know, dominant struggles and one of them will rise up to be the pack leader. And, you know, that'll end that there'll be challenges every once in a while, but it's not like some of the dogs I'm dealing with from my original foundation stock, mainly my male, my main male, uh, Caucasian of Charka Capone and my main, or sorry, uh, Renegade, my main, uh, male Central Asian of Charka Capone. And then my main male Armenian Gamper Creed. If those three were ever to interact with each other in any way, shape, or form, it's going to be a dog fight to the death. So that, you know, that can't ever happen. And look, I mean, on the, based on the goals you're trying to achieve, if you're looking for a family dog, um, you know, you may want your dog to be able to interact with all your other dogs at any point in time. You know, if you're looking for a perimeter patrol guardian and you have dogs that, you know, you let outside the house, but you've got property and you want this one dog to guard, you know, feeding separately is not an option. That dog's always out running. Um, What I do tell clients is give them a space that they can call their own, Mm -hmm. whether or not they're confined to it, feed in that space, um, some sort of structure, kennel, something. I mean, the door can always be open, but I've noticed with these breeds, if they have an area that they can call home, that's just, there's not any other dogs and they know it. Um, I, I think that, uh, that gets rid of a lot of the problems. The uh, one other thing I've noticed, um, is the hierarchy I personally put dogs in uh-huh. and the amount of leeway that I give them. I see that that makes a difference because I am, you know, pack leader or whatever. Yeah. Um, the dog that I, not that it really should have any play in, you know, their pack dynamics, but the dog that I, I hate to say my favorite dog, um, that dog, you know, tends to, tends to kind of be above the scuffle and doesn't seem to, uh, have to get very involved in the pack dynamics like it. You know, just seems like 
I've never seen anybody ever challenge her, mm-hmm. and it's female too. Interesting. So what is your future uh, plans with the uh, Caucasian Ovarskis? Um, I'm going to continue breathing, breeding them um, pure. I have done a cross at this point in time, um, but for the most part, pure breeds, I am using some of them as livestock guardians. That's their natural tendency. They are great at that. Um, I've got one that's doing agility work. Um, she's she's very impressive and one of my smartest dogs. Um, she has her moments where she's extremely stubborn, but um, for the most part, she's she's very uh, very handler oriented and intelligent. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, probably my next litter, I'm going to take two puppies set them aside and i'm only going to work them in a prey drive kind of fashion um so far what i've seen out of the breed is that from a personal protection standpoint they only operate from defense drive uh they you know they're only gonna aggress on something that's um either stepping onto the property um, is interfering with the livestock they're bonded to or interfering with a home um, or presenting a threat to even even just, you know, uh, a combative stance or gesture towards the person or the family they are bonded with. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, you know, there, I've seen those Eastern European lines that kind of um straddle both they're they're on they're doing perimeter patrol they are security dogs so they have a set boundary um that they're supposed to be guarding but you can also tell that they've also had intense targeting training they only go for legs they only go for arms they out on command they're biting on command um so that's going to be one of my focuses with my next litter is to, um, you know, do a lot more prey drive work with them. I didn't necessarily want that uh, on my first litter because they are livestock guardians. I do have livestock. I do live on a farm and um, wasn't, you know, that's something I wanted to do, but um, I needed to kind of learn more about the breed, how they interact as puppies, how I was picking my puppies. And obviously I can't sell a dog to most people. Mm -hmm. Most people do not have a need to have a 150 plus pound dog that is extremely aggressive and, you know, has been trained for that from an early age, but it's super important that you start at even like five, six weeks old, Um, doing drive work and confidence building with any kind of dog that's going to be doing personal protection work, especially a Mastiff because it's their off breed. They are not easy to get to operate out of Mm -hmm. um, a prey drive. They're a defense drive dog. Mm -hmm. And one thing with defense drive is every time you challenge a dog and you put him into that, you're kind of chiseling away at their confidence. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to build them back up after you do that. And so it's not something you can work the dog on every day, like a Mm mouth. Um, so if you can get a dog to operate from a prey 
a prey drive kind of mode for that type of work, it's better. And that's kind of one of the things I'm looking for um, with all my breeds, really. Uh, I want a very independent dog that can, you know, exercise its own good judgment, has the intelligence to do so, to make a decision without a handler present, like in a nighttime scenario where it's running the property, if it assesses a threat, it needs to make a decision without somebody telling it to make that decision. Um, but at the same time, I want to be able to tell that dog everything if I'm there and it, you know, have complete obedience to whatever I'm telling it to do. So they're kind of conflicting ideas, um, especially, you know, in these uh, guardian breeds. Mm-hmm. And I would, that's personally what I'm, I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, from a working dog standpoint, you're going to evaluate temperament first and foremost, health and temperament structure. Um, and it's not necessarily going to adhere to the breed standard. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if you're trying to utilize it in multiple capacities. Um, but if you're talking about breed standard in general, um, I'm less interested in that and more interested in having a functional working dog. Mm-hmm. Um, I think show dogs are highly overrated. Um, I think that they sacrifice a lot of temperament, a lot of um, genetic health, and lots of other things to adhere to a breed standard set forth by registries. Um, I have my dogs registered through tons of, you know, I like Arba out of all of them. I have AKC, UKC, and FCI registered dogs. Um, I hate working with all three of the above. Arba is my most preferred. It is the smallest. Um, it's actually old. It's uh, That's the American Rare Breed Association. Mm-hmm. Um, I have shown dogs through them, and um, that was more for my own personal gain mm-hmm. of experience. Um, wasn't looking to win anything, but just trying to learn more about that world. Um, it is absolutely not for me. And I don't want to necessarily, you know, be constrained by a breed standard. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to breed the dogs in front of me. Mm -hmm. And I'm, you know, from what I want to achieve with my program. And I don't really care what other people think. Um, And I'm, you know, doing my own thing there. Um, If that lines up with breed standard, great. Uh, if not, well, oh, well, um, I will tell any consumer or anybody buying a dog from me, you know, what the situation is with that and what I think about that. Um, but yeah, it's, um, I would look at temperament first and foremost. Well, before you even get to temperament, when you're breeding two dogs, you're looking, I think first you start with genetics, um, let's eradicate any genetic disease first because that's easy and that, you know, that should be the first check in the box. Then go to temperament of the parents um, and working ability from their uh, structure. 
I don't necessarily, so if you've got a dog that you can have police canines that are, you know, phenomenal working dogs, but they have some sort of fault, um, potentially like being cow hawked or, and you actually see this in a lot of the, um, Eastern European, when I say, I, I guess more, um, like the Sarabi dogs, um, Angles. So any of the dogs from Turkey, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, all these dogs in that kind of area, um, Iran, you see a lot of dogs that have, that are cow hawked or have east west in the back legs or what a lot would consider to be faults. Um, and tell you they don't care as much over there. Uh, if the dog functions and does its job, you know, if it does it to the exact same performance level that a normal dog mm-hmm. does it to or better, they're not even going to consider that as a, you know, potential reason not to breed. It is that kind of similar to your philosophy? Um, no, I, uh, I absolutely look at structure. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna breed a cow hawk dog. Um, just because that's another check in the box that I think you've got to look at first. But, um, you know, it, I don't know. It's a fine line. That's a call you have to make as a breeder. Um, whether, I mean, you're going to have, you're never going to, not going to say never, you, you can have a hundred dogs in your lifetime and have only one that, fits every criteria you want to see that has the perfect temperament, the perfect DNA, the perfect structure, muscle structure, bone structure, um, you know, has no faults. That's, you know, once in a lifetime dog. So as a breeder, you have to look at the pros and the cons of every breeding. Obviously you're trying to pick, um, dogs that complement each other so if one dog has this issue or is you know has something that's amazing about it then you got another dog that might not be as great in that department um but you know correct something else that the other dog has you're pairing the breedings and you're breeding the dogs in front of you to complement each other um with the breed registries and with standards a lot of people are forced to you know, I mean, financial monetary restrictions are a major thing. Uh, space restrictions, you get two dogs. You don't have the money to get outside, you know, the dogs that you pick. And if they end up being an unperfect specimen, you know, a lot of people are still going to breed them anyways because they don't have don't have 50 other dogs to pick from. Um, I'm fortunate enough that I do have that situation. I can be picky about my breedings. Um but, you know, that's just, just looking. I mean, that comes with experience, too, and time, and you get better as you know at it as you go. Right, right. DM is the number one thing I'm seeing mm-hmm. and hearing about with uh, Caucasian Otarkas. A lot of breeders don't even want to talk about it. But as, you know, as a consumer, and if you're looking to get into breeding especially, um, you know, I said right off the bat, you know, DNA test all your dogs because that's the that's starting point. Now, there's a lot of major kennels, especially if you're importing dogs. You know that a lot of a lot of dogs are not DNA tested 
um, that are being imported. But even in America, a lot of the very well-established kennels are not DNA testing or they're DNA testing one dog or they're, you know, not willing to give you results or they'll, you know, I don't know, they're not completely transparent about it. Um, degenerative allopathy is probably the number one disease I have seen and heard about with Caucasian of Charcos. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something, you know, you need to check for right off the bat and make sure that your breeder is aware of it, knows, has checked for it, knows what, you know, potentially their dogs are carrying or are affected. And Bark is the DNA test that I use. In Bark, um, I've used Wisdom Panel. And in the past, that's, so those are the two biggest companies for health testing dogs. Um, Embark tests for a lot more diseases in general, but also just in terms of results and um, their tools that they have, especially for breeders. Mm-hmm. It's much more comprehensive. You're getting a lot more out of it, and the results are a lot more reliable because um, I've got dogs that are, I know the specific makeup for it because I've tested multiple dogs in the lines, and then I've use wisdom panel and gotten different results um that i know are not the case um and so i don't necessarily trust them in bark i've had nothing but good results with mm-hmm. not necessarily results i want but um i trust their test right depends on the purpose of the dog uh-huh. um so with Caucasians, there's two different, you know, with almost all these mountain dog breeds that are molossers, uh-huh. uh, you've got two different breed types, a high altitude and a low altitude. Um, so with the Caucasians, you know, they come from the Caucasus Mountains. That's Georgia, mm-hmm. the country of Georgia. Um, and some of those dogs are high altitude. Um, and those are the ones that have the higher bone density, um, more muscular. They're going to be a lot heavier. They have a thicker coat. Um, and then they had what's called a step dog. Um, and that's going to be your low, your low altitude kind of valley in between mountain regions or flat regions. Mm -hmm. Um, and those dogs, you know, have to patrol a much larger area. Um, they are much more athletic per se, and they're thin, they're meant to run. They have a thinner bone structure, um, and they're, they have long muscle, not as dense, like a bulky bodybuilder. Uh It's more of an athletic runner type muscle build. So, um, I'm not particularly, um, attached to either one. I see the functionality between both. Um, it depends on what you're doing with the dog. So if you've got a, if you've got a, if your dogs are not going to be covering a large area, you know, you might not need a dog that has to be super athletic. It can be, uh, a higher, you know, bone density and you might be looking for just a big dog in general. Um, so for that kind of build, the high altitude ones, um, I would say between, Height is very, very ranging. 
um, 27 to 32 inches and definitely in weight, they're going to be a lot heavier. Um, you're looking at, uh, between 150 and 220, mm-hmm. um, on a low altitude dog or just one for, you know, me personally and breeding in Texas, um, kind of the dogs that I see actually running a thousand acre ranch, um, and, you know, a, a pack of three or four, I want that dog to be athletic. It's got to cover a lot of ground every night. Um, and not only does it have to run and patrol, mm-hmm. but if it does get in a situation where it has to actively take down a threat, that dog's got to be super athletic, not you know burn all its energy just running the perimeter. It has to then be able to ex- you know exert an extreme amount of energy in a short period of time. Uh, you know, you know, nearly explosive type scenario where it's you know absolutely in a fight for its life or a fight to protect the property. Um, and for that kind of dog, I think it needs to be uh, very athletic. Um, so that's going to be, I mean, me personally, I would say 130 pounds is, you know, a pretty good weight. Um, probably don't want to see a whole lot over that. I mean, that depends on, on your height. Um, but again, that's, based on what you're trying to do with the dog and picking the correct, you know, job or tech, uh, correct dog for the purpose. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so the Caucasian of Charka um, started, well, you have to go back actually further. So you start seeing supposedly there's in uh Germany, there were dog or wolves buried with humans that were clearly living together at uh, fourteen thousand BC. Mm-hmm. So that goes. That's probably the first time you see dogs, um, you know, interacting or wolves interacting with the human world. You know, obviously they became domesticated. Um, you go back to ancient civilizations, Mesopotamia, cradle of life type scenario. I think is Nimrod. There is a statue of what they called at the time a molossus. Um, and that goes back to, that's pretty ancient. I want to say, um, let's say that, that was about 5,000 BC, mm-hmm. maybe 2,000. Um, I know the first for sure recorded dogs in history are Tibetan Mastiffs. They were documented um, 1121 BC. And I think that's where you, I think that's where you get these Asian breed dogs from. They all came from what is now the Tibetan Mastiff. It's the oldest extant dog in existence currently. Um, And that is, you know, what all these breeds diverged from. Um, the original molasses, that was probably 5,000 BC, um, which is around the time you hear about the Tibetan Mastiff, the molasses of Epirus, and all of them show a very large dog, 
all statues, drawings, pictures. They show a very large dog with a long muzzle. Uh, that's very, it's a thick, long muzzled dog and it has long hair. Um, I think, I think the Caucasian and the Tibetans are probably the closest to what these dogs that you see in these recording statues, pictures, um, are the closest of. Also in 5,000, around 5,000 BC, you have the Anatolian, uh, shepherds that start appearing, um, so those are your oldest dogs. 4,000 BC, you have Central Asian of Charcas popping up. And then um, in around 2000 BC is the first recordings of um, the Caucasian of Charca. And um, as you move forward a lot through history, you know, I talked about them being from Georgia, um, Azerbaijan, that region, the Caucasus Mountains. They had their two different breed types. Um, as it moves more modern, the they're famous as, you know, the Russian bear dog, or you hear about them being from Russia. I've imported a couple of mine from Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's mainly because the Soviet Union um, – wanted so their you know normal purpose in these mountains was to protect livestock um they protect nomadic tribes as they were out hunting or they protected the actual village and then you know we're out protecting the livestock at night and then the uh russians soviet union wanted to use it as more of a patrol dog um, for their military installments, for um, personal protection type, more more geared towards a personal protection dog as an anti-personnel dog. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the things that you hear about in the uh, nature of, if you were to compare, for example, Central Asian of Charka and a Caucasian of Charka, people are going to tell you that the Caucasian of Charka is much more human aggressive. And that's true. Um, versus a Central Asian Otrarca that's much more animal aggressive. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, goes back to this history. I believe that the UKC, um, when I was in the 1990s, I want to say mid-1990s, the UKC accepted it as a um, registered breed. Currently, the AKC uh, does not register them. They're considered... Uh, foundation stock services mm-hmm. FSS um, so they're not an AKC registered breed yet so it's it's still very much um, over there the FCI is the longest you know accepted um, registration they've got a very interesting history yeah, and yeah. it mainly is you know separated into the two schools of thought whether this dog is supposed to be a livestock guardian or an anti-personnel dog. Mm-hmm. And you see a very divergent kind of idea in, in between. Um, and I think I think even in the uh, structure, um, the anti-personnel dogs have that longer coat, um, the larger bone structure, which makes sense, that, you know, that they were being used in Russia. It's, you know, cold, mm-hmm. very cold. Um, they actually do very well in extreme weather scenarios. 
that was one thing I wasn't sure on when I moved to Texas, how that was going to work out um, with 110 degree heat and a dog that's rated to negative 40. I had seen people in Africa in very arid, hot environments using them um, and in Mongolia in the Mongolian desert. And so I suspected that they would be okay, but I didn't know importing from Russian and European lines, how that was going to work out because they weren't, you know, genetically that had not been something that they had to deal with yet. So the dogs I imported from Russia struggled at first. Um, They had to get through one season and blow coat. Uh Um, Second year, they in the summer they did much better the dogs that i've produced are pretty much unfazed they don't have any special treatment um they handle the heat fine what what is the struggle is when it's raining and hot and then you get um you know anything above 90 percent humidity yeah wall over 95 degrees that's when they start struggling and it's um more t- it's more when regards to their skin, um, their skin and that undercoat trapping that moisture yeah. um, in their, their uh, coats tend to dread very easy. Um, that's another thing I do. My dogs don't look like other people's dogs. I groom them differently. Um, I take, I take a lot off their ears, a lot off their haunches okay. and tails to keep um, that from occurring. The summer, it starts usually in about April in Texas. Um, that's when they blow their first coat and you pretty much have to groom them, uh, groom and brush. Um, I'm still doing it now and we're, you know, mid-September. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll probably be doing it all the way through October. It depends on how you're doing it. Um, if you're trying to minimize any casualties and you're trying to kind of take like a very hands-on approach, uh, you're going to struggle, um, because they're so aggressive. I mean, it doesn't matter who you are. They're going to be, they're going to guard their, you know, their young, uh, at a level I haven't seen with any other breed of dog. Mm -hmm. Um, if you're a very hands-off kind of person and you know, you're going to let nature take its course and they do their own thing. Um, then, you know, it's that it's going to be a lot easier for you. The dog is, you know, going to have its area, but that's not a, a situation where you can have other dogs around. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to be in their own very separate, isolated area, and you have to have some pretty heavy-duty infrastructure to be able to accommodate that. I mean, yeah, as soon as the pups are born, if you're taking that approach, if you're trying to minimize casualties um, with, like, the mom, per se, you know, stepping on or rolling over uh-huh. um, young, that's any large breed dog, any mastiff, molosser. Um, two weeks is about the time, like, you really need to be cognizant of that occurring. They're they're pretty good. Uh, I'm didn't have any issues with them or the Central Asian of Charcas. That tends to be um, more of a problem for the Neos mm-hmm. and um, traditional Mastiff breeds, Burbles, um, 
English. So because these are ancient breed dogs, um, what I or what I've noticed, my experience with whelping all these different types of Velocis breeds is your older ancient breed dogs are much better at naturally occurring processes and kind of letting it go. Um, that being said, they do have large litter sizes, um, and you need to be timing pretty carefully and watching it. Um, you know, I would have a vet. Um, if depend, I mean, again, it depends on what is an acceptable loss ratio to you. What um, what risk you're willing to take with your females Mm -hmm. um but i personally i have a vet that knows you know that's on standby knows the dog is starting the whelping process or um hasn't started and i'm ready to go with an emergency c-section if that's with you know any of these dogs um if that's you know a possibility i've already consulted a vet and talked to them prior to them even starting attraction 